Yesterday, we talked about how the broadband gap got so large. Today, we talk about some of the regulatory, political, and technical hurdles facing us today. With me is Bruce Melman, co-chairman of the Internet Innovation Alliance. Thanks for joining me, Bruce. Thanks for having me. So for starters, what is the Internet Innovation Alliance? What do you do? So the Internet Innovation Alliance is a group of, uh, of companies and NGOs and, and even individuals uh, who share the belief in the power and importance of high-speed internet, of broadband. Uh, and it actually came together when I left the Bush administration, where I had been serving as Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Technology Policy. Uh, I reached out to a guy who had served in the Clinton administration on uh, internet policy, a guy named Larry Irving. And uh, I didn't know Larry very well. I just knew that every time I ever tried to get any positive media in the Bush administration, some guy named Larry Irving would get quoted in the story saying why we sucked. And I'm like, I got to meet this guy. And we just hit it off and found that um, we uh, there's a lot of mutual friendship, mutual admiration, but even more, there's a recognition that partisanship should stop at the network's edge and that we shared the belief in the importance and the power of broadband and the uh, desire to have every American have access to the technology because we thought it would be good for the country uh, and good for the world. All right. So, yeah, let's, let's talk about the digital divide. We spent the previous episode talking about how we got here. So talk a little bit about the digital divide problem as it looks like today. You know, unfortunately, the digital divide problem today looks similar to the digital divide problem of 10 years ago and 20 years ago. And uh, some might argue that new technologies will always have a gap between haves and have nots based on some combination of income and geography and, 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 uh, and comfort with technology. And when you think about the digital divide, those are really the three lanes. The question number one is availability. Where do you live? You know, if you live on the top of a mountain, you know, that may be great for, uh, for being a llama, but it's probably not good for uh, anything other than satellite. So availability has always struggled, particularly in rural areas. Lane two is affordability. So, uh, you know, I, where I, my part of Montgomery County, Maryland, there are a lot of providers offering blazing speeds. It's awesome, um, but, uh, but we can afford what they're charging. And for a lot of American families, and it's gonna only get worse over the next year or two as a result of COVID and the economic uh, post-COVID devastation, um, there are a lot of folks who just can't afford. And it's, it's not only the access, it's also the device or devices. So that's challenge number two. Challenge number three, you might call comfortability, if it's availability, affordability, comfortability, it's just comfort with technology. So some of the people who don't have broadband are of an age where they've just decided that they're intimidated by whatever they think is involved in getting it or maintaining it. Maybe they're worried about cyber security or they're worried about cyber hits. For others, there is a digital literacy absence. You know, we, we teach, we still teach foreign language, but we don't teach coding as a foreign language in most schools. And uh, for a lot of Americans, you know, even if you live in a place uh, where you could get broadband, and let's just say maybe even if you have it, you've got to, having it and knowing, and even being able to afford it, you still got to know how to use it. You've got to know how to use it for things other than, uh, other than kind of fun videos or, or streaming. Well, so that this is the this is one of those few issues where I think everyone seems to agree. Uh, clearly, your partnership with Mr. Irving um, shows that this is a bipartisan thing uh, or issue. But like, why why haven't we come up with a solution? To to your point that like the problem has been the same for the last two plus decades. Well, why haven't we come up with a solution? 
I think there are probably a couple of different challenges. I mean, first, if we had, quote unquote, solved this 20 years ago, maybe we would have had ISDN, uh, which was the cutting edge technology of a long time ago. We would have spent billions and gotten that wired everywhere. Uh, but suddenly, if you move to a fiber world, you'd be like, well, we haven't gotten it everywhere. We've got to redo it all. And then you redo it all. And now you find we're a 5G world. And so some of the challenges, technology continues to advance. There is no future proof uh, single technology. Fiber is pretty good, but it wasn't. Uh, it, it's not like we had the same technology, even fiber technologies to the home available 20 years ago, if only we had. So challenge one is technology keeps changing and evolving. Challenge two is uh, even as we spend a uh, trillion dollars a year more than we brought in as a, as a federal deficit matter, and that was before this year, that was before COVID, there are far more demands for the dollars than there are uh, dollars. And so uh, when you're the federal government, yeah, we should, you know, I would think getting broadband to all Americans is so positive for the economy, it's worth spending money on. But there are also people who would say, actually, giving people affordable health care is equally important or more important. And there are other people who would say that's all true. But one of the things we learned is kids in school, one of the reasons we serve uh, free lunches to kids below a certain income threshold is you can't learn if you're hungry. And so that's even more fundamental and more important. So we know we got to spend money on education. We know we got to spend money on health care. The water in Flint, Michigan is, is polluted with with uh, with uh, lead and you know from hopelessly aging pipes and bridges in Michigan are, are are collapsing because they're ancient. So because we have limited federal dollars, you're always fighting over how to deploy resources, even as you try to keep up with the pace of technology. And you know, in the constituencies, often for healthcare or for uh, affordable food, uh, may be uh, more sympathetic or more more legitimate or more credible. And, and so, uh, some of our challenges, you need almost a permanent amount of, of dollars if you really want to get everything to everybody. And then you have, while it is a bipartisan issue, we all want broadband everywhere. I think you often would find a bit of a uh, next marginal dollar difference where the, if you had one more dollar, the average Republican who likely represents exurban and more rural areas would want to spend it on uh, subsidizing deployment to rural areas. And the average Democrat who's more likely to uh, represent urban areas would say, no, we got to make it more affordable where it already exists, but where it's prohibitively priced for those at a certain income. And the challenge is they're both right. Yeah, that's that, that's an interesting point because it, it's uh, it's really the nuances where folks are, are kind of disagreeing. Are there these other political disagreements there that that muddy the water when it comes to moving forward with this? Well, uh, unfortunately, we're at a point now where uh, amplified on cable TV and 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 moved into hyperspeed by uh, social media, partisanship makes uh, a lot of elected officials uh, afraid of cutting deals, afraid of being seen as somehow compromising, uh, even though that's the system that the founders designed. Uh, so it's a lot less safe to be a centrist, and it's a lot less safe to you know, to uh, take half a loaf and give half a loaf than it used to be. Um, that's just made things such as sound broadband policy that much more difficult. Um, you know, the uh, the age of President Trump has, has taken what was already um, really challenging in the era of, uh, of President Obama, you know, to the point where he pointed out that if Congress wouldn't cooperate, he, quote, had a phone, had a pen. It's gone 10x more intense. Uh, and so, 
the lack of ready bipartisanship, the lack of eagerness to compromise and to work on things has made things difficult. But also the fact that um, we were running a trillion dollar a year deficit in an unbelievably prosperous economy. Uh, and and uh, the idea of finding yet more dollars was always elusive. You know, and last, the, the rural constituents who don't have access to it are, are small in number. And the, uh, the uh, urban folks uh, who found the price prohibitive were small in political power. You know, and often in uh, in politics, squeaky wheels get the grease. And so, uh, you know, if you are a, if you're a loud, high impact constituency with the ability to to uh, get members of Congress hired and fired, you're more likely to be listened to. Gotcha. So I mean, ultimately, is this and I know there are a lot of different factors here, but is, is this more of a D.C. problem or more of a technical or, or a service provider problem? You know, it's it's unfortunately it's a combination of all of the above in terms of, and I view it more as a challenge because if you take a look at the number of Americans who have internet access today, it's much higher than it's ever been. I mean, we are in many ways solving, um, at least solving yesterday's divide. The problem is by the time we get more uh, of of less robust technology to people, you and I will have moved on to five G and and the blazing possibilities that five G brings. Um, it's it is a combination of because the technology always advances, which is an inherently good thing. Um, you then have businesses that are going to deploy it where they're going to get a return on invested capital because that's what a market system does. Um, the uh, the uh, alternative, a government-run system doesn't innovate. So we'd rather have a market-driven system, but a market-driven system uh, looks to get the highest ROI. And so in a world like that, you end up where you have uh, for technologies or for healthcare or for food or for things that we think are basic essentials, you know, the government historically has stepped in uh, to try to help uh, uh, those who can't afford it or to help get access to those who are not a uh, high ROI business proposition to receive it. And you even have, you know, look, some communities are trying to take self-help methods. That's fraught. On the one hand, um, if you decide that let's aggregate demand, that's great. You're going to make the uh, return on investment proposition for a for a carrier that much greater. But if you say, let's just create our own service and we're going to be the provider, the problem is now you're a market competitor too. And so if you and I are running a city and we decide that we're going to do muni bonds and that's going to pay for our city's deployment, and let's say we did it, but we did it with 3G. Well, to get a return on those bonds, we need everybody to use the 3G system, which means we have a disincentive for fiber to be rolled out by a private carrier or for 5G to come in. And so, you know, it, this it, it's uh, as with all things innovation, it's a constant uh, race to try to keep up. I do think things such as E-Rate have been wildly successful and continuing to make sure that we start with the technology both to the schools but also to the learners, because as we see, sometimes you can't get to your school. I think that makes a big difference. Yeah, you bring up a good point about sort of the the community examples, and I you know I want to bring up obviously Chattanooga is you know oftentimes held up as an example of a community that basically pushed its local telecom and power company to offer gigabit fiber. Uh, you know, it's held up as, as a success story. I'm curious why there aren't more of those. Is is it the competition issue? Is it why is it so difficult to get? more of that? Because that seemed to work really well for that community. Yeah, I don't know the Chattanooga uh, individual story so well. To the extent they aggregated the demand and made it a more attractive value proposition, I mean, look, it's hard to get collective action. It's hard to get folks to agree on things. And 
you know, I bet a lot of people would say, well, I'm going to come to the table provided that when all said and done, you can guarantee me that I'm going to be dealt in. And, you know, and so uh, larger communities often challenge and struggle because of differences of prioritization. Um, it sounds like Chattanooga perhaps got around that, you know, but I do think that the majority of communities also don't want to become private actors in, in business because they don't want to be competing against the private sector. They want, in a perfect world, you'd want to have two or three competing providers and that the, the desire to get your business would be why they advertise, why they hire people, why they compete on quality, why they compete on speed. Um, and we see that in a majority of the country. The challenge that we're trying to solve for and that your great series here is focusing on is um, it's a 90% solution, 80% solution. It depends what how you want to measure things, but we know there's a 10 to 20% that are left behind. And and we we need to solve for them, and we want to solve for them. But it's not as simple as um, you know ban it or mandate it. It, it requires uh, it requires a lot of money, and you're going to have to take that money from somewhere. It requires a decision of well, who's worthy of the money, and what should we require in terms of accountability for it. And you know, and and, uh, and government's been challenged to doing that in lots of different ways for infrastructure. In terms of those those. Larger providers, folks like AT and T and Comcast. I mean, what what role do they play in in closing the gap? And are they are they part of the problem or are they problem part of the solution? Uh, and I ask this knowing full well that AT and T is a member of of your alliance. Uh, but w- what what do you say to the role that those companies play? I think those companies are overwhelmingly part of the solution uh, because the eighty percent to ninety percent of the nation that has it has it thanks to those providers. And it's those providers competing against each other that that keep upping the game and forcing the next level. I mean, AT and T was the first folks to roll out the iPhone, you know. Which I think, when history is written, the iPhone will be the Gutenberg printing press of our generation in terms of its uh, impact on changing society for better and for worse. I mean, that's what's allowed mobile social media to really roil our politics and to, you know, to add. Uh, to, I don't know about you, but I've got some teens, you know, to, to, to uh, change the nature of, uh, of a conversation I might otherwise have had with them. Um, I think the challenge is uh, to expect a private business to, I mean, they're not, if they lose money, they get killed in the market, they go out of business. And so uh, to figure out how do, we, uh, how do we get them to do something that isn't inherently economically rational or as rational as alternatives they may have for their resources. And some of it is we need to have high expectations and we need to hold them accountable for high expectations. You know, and, and companies such as those do a whole lot to serve stakeholders uh, in the community and in their employee base and others uh, that's admirable, but we need to keep pushing them. And I think uh, the, the moral suasion you get from policymakers often helps uh, push businesses to do a little bit more than they might, might otherwise have done. But the challenge is, a little bit more is good, but a little bit more gets you from 80 to 85 percent, or from you know 90 to 92 percent, and you know, and maybe a hundred percent is forever unattainable. But 98, 99 percent, which is sort of where we got to with the telephone, and it's what we got to with electrification, and it feels increasingly that broadband is of similar uh, criticality. Yeah, for sure. I, I would I would argue at this point, the broadband is absolutely as critical as power. Let's start with the coronavirus. You mentioned you kind of hinted or talked about that a little bit earlier. You know, it's upended everything, and the fact that we're all in lockdown uh, and socially distancing has 
exacerbated the problem. Really highlight the fact that for folks who are fall under this broadband broadband gap, uh, they're really missing out on opportunities on on, on life and society in, in general. Uh, do you think that this crisis is the catalyst that we need to really get things moving? You know, I'm hoping you're very much right that. What we've seen during COVID is that the digitized thrived, both individuals and businesses, whether it's in the stock market or in operations, and the undigitized have failed. And at the organizational level, the most famous undigitized are EDS, MEDS, and FEDS. So schools were not well prepared for remote learning, which is kind of insane since they have snow days and there are other reasons they could have, should have, would have, but they never did prepare for that. Um, you know, healthcare telehealth was long available as a as a um, as way better than not being seen, and maybe better than having to drive half a day to go see a specialist. But there have always been barriers that didn't have to be there, and as a result, there is there was a lack of of expertise. You know, that's ramping up really fast because it's so useful. You know, when you think about feds. I mean, government. We still haven't prepared our voting systems adequately for when there's a national emergency. Congress, 19 years after after 9-11 had caused the closure of airspace over the country, Congress didn't have a plan to work remotely. Uh, at the individual level, we're seeing that Congress may pass now a great bill, if you're a small business, uh, to give you economic relief. And they deserve a ton of credit for moving so fast and in such a bipartisan way to try to make some of that small business relief available. But who got it? Usually people who were aware of it, people who had uh, relationships with bankers and often people uh, who were uh, already online and aware of it. And like, likewise for individuals, if you want to apply for um, unemployment insurance or relief, especially in a world where you can't go stand in an office, that's all done digitally and that's all done electri uh, electrically or, or you know, uh, uh, over the internet. Um, I, I think uh, when all said and done, I think 2020 is gonna prove to be a bit more accelerative than transformational. The trend of digitizing was already a trend that we were seeing, but I think 10 years of digitization may happen in the next two years. And that is very much of a result of realizing, wow, um, the gaps, not only were they profound, but when you have this you know, black swan type event, um, it, it, it highlights that much more the gap between haves and have nots and that can't persist. The problem, Roger, is it's not like, okay, great, so we'll pass a bill and it's done. You know, to get rural broadband requires a lot of funding and a lot of investment and a lot of building out of infrastructure at a time when we're in, you know, yet one more turn towards 5G, a great new technology. And affordability means you have to take a look at the programs we've got. You have to figure out if they're right sized, if they're hitting the right people, if they're subsidizing the right things. It may require more money. It may require smarter administration. You know, and then last, the digital literacy and the comfort with using this I mean, that's almost a generational thing. And while happily Gen Z and, and millennials are digital natives, um, that's likely more true of people who grew up with those technologies around the home and who integrated those technologies into their learning. You know, and we run the risk as a result of, um, of uh, lack of social mobility of having generational poverty be a generational digital divide issue. Now we've got obviously the presidential elections coming up Trump or Biden, uh, I'm just curious if either one winning makes a difference for this issue, or if there's just so much else going on that this sort of takes a backseat to all the other problems we're facing. 
Well, so the, the way you phrase that, I mean, it's all relative as to what your top issue. If your top issue is climate, then broadband's not as important as climate, for example, or if it's guns in schools or, you know, there are a lot of issues. And I would actually say in a lot of ways, happily, broadband is not what they're beating each other up about because nothing makes it more difficult to advance an issue that inherently needs bipartisanship than having it be the campaign issue um, that uh, that the sides try to uh, attack one another on. I would want both sides have indicated an eagerness to put more than a trillion dollars uh, towards infrastructure. Um, as noted, I think the the Trump approach on broadband is going to be a little bit more focused on rural rollout because that's where his constituents are. So that's voices he hears more frequently. I think a Biden administration would be a little bit more focused on affordability, especially in inner cities and especially, you know, the urban poor. As I've noted, the Internet Innovation Alliance thinks they're both right in that regard. So we'll work with whomever is uh, whoever is there to the extent your uh, reflex is, well, this just requires a lot of money. Historically, I would argue that uh, historically Democrats have spent more than Republicans have spent on government programs. At the same time, you know, the Trump administration racked up before COVID had racked up just about the same debt over their period of time as the Obama administration in a meaningfully longer period of time. Um, in four years with COVID, the Trump deficits will equal the eight years of Obama deficits where they had the they kind of had a front end load of, of government stimulus and it wasn't nearly as much as we're doing with the pandemic. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll see if the if the, uh, the I think the biggest risk to this are the deficit politics returning as they did after the subsidies and the bailouts of the financial collapse. Suddenly you had that they called it the super committee, which was anything but trying to come up with ways to cut federal spending. In the end, they decided to just cut it across the board, which is sort of like dieting by amputating your leg. Um, I, I worry we're going to be looking at a super duper committee here of efforts to uh, to cut back spending. And the worry is when you do that, you continue to you know to fork out money to seniors, and you continue to fork out money on the entitlement programs, which are on autopilot, and you end up starving things like R and D, like infrastructure, like education, which are investments in your future growth. Got it. And I guess lastly, we'll just end it uh, looking at everything that's going on. Uh, how, are you optimistic or pessimistic in terms of the direction we are headed towards in regards to closing the digital divide? I am medium and long term super optimistic about the country and about where things will be. In the short term, I'm scared down to my socks. America has always done the right thing after trying everything else. We always find a way, you know, we always tend to come back, but we often uh, wait a really long time and kind of dig a pretty big hole. You know, here, if you take a look at digital haves, uh, it was a pretty small subset 20 years ago and the digital have nots were the majority. And now the digital have nots are a far, a far smaller minority. I'm hoping that, um, that some of the, uh, some of the, uh, strife that we've, the social strife we've seen this year highlighting persistent uh, racial inequities that we just as a nation haven't dealt with. I think solving some of those, broadband is part of the solution and, and solving some of those will actually help with the urban affordability questions and with some of the rollout questions. You know, so I just, I remain really bullish on what America can get done in the medium and the long term. And I think digital divide uh, will be one of them with with the caveat we said before of there's you know, there's always going to be the next new technology. It's going to start it's going to start uh, rolled out in cities and it's going to start expensive. That stuff 
will always go to people who can afford it more and people who live in more uh, dense areas first. That's just the way every technology has always been. But we need a system to make sure that as the rollout proceeds apace, it doesn't stop the way it has been stopping. Thanks, Bruce, for your time. That's it for part two of our series, Looking Into the Digital Divide. Check in tomorrow for part three, where we'll talk to Blair Levine, who helped usher in the national broadband plan under the Obama administration. For The Daily Charge, I'm Roger Chang. Thanks for listening.